You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Luke 18 is where we're going to be, and so you need to open it up and have that on your lap. It's going to take us a few minutes to get there, so hold tight, but Luke 18 is what you need to be looking at. Um, before we before we jump in this morning, I need to uh, cover two pieces of just family kind of talk um, with Stonegate. And so if you're a covenant member, you need to make sure you're listening well. If you're not a covenant member here, you're welcome to listen in. Um, this wouldn't specifically kind of be your part. And so um, to the Stonegate family, uh, two months ago, we uh, had a family meeting where we presented a piece of land, 12 acres on the corner, northeast corner of uh, George Hopper and 14th Street, right across from Frank Sill Middle School. And uh, we told you that God had brought it to us and we felt inclined to kind of start pursuing this thing and to see where it goes. And so that's been about two months ago. And that family meeting, really the purpose was to say that we all need to really be praying hard over this. And, uh, and we want to give you plenty of time to ask questions, express concerns, affirm it, whatever, for you to be able to pray and, and seek God and to let us know kind of what God's telling you on that too. And it also gave us a couple of months to do due, uh, due diligence on the piece of property. And so I think we're to the point now, uh, about two months into that, of being able to say that we feel like God has confirmed and continued to lead us toward purchasing uh, this piece of property. So apart from God doing something um, really profound over the next month or so, um, at the end of uh, June, we're going to write an $800,000 check and pay cash for the piece of property on the corner of 14th and George Hopper. So, yeah, and that's a great thing. I mean, that's, yeah, for sure. That should excite you as a Christian. For, for that to be a, for that to happen, that is God being extraordinarily gracious, gracious to our church two and a half years in, right? And so uh, now here's the second piece of that conversation. It's in light of us spending uh, that money in, in June. We're also going to ask uh, in, in June, July, and August, those three months, we're going to ask God to really work some extraordinary generosity into our church family over those three months. Like This is what I'm praying for, and I'd invite you to pray the same thing for us, is that we're hoping over those three months that God will replenish much of what we just spent um, as we pay at the end of June. And so we're asking for you to get before God in your finances with your family and for you to open that up and say, God, what would, this is the question we want you to ask before God, what would extraordinary generosity look like for these three months? I think that question before God could look a couple of different ways. It might sound like this. God, what would sacrificial and cheerful giving look like for my family? Like, what would it look like for us to have had some things on the schedule this summer, but for us to not do those things because we want to be sacrificial in the way we give? Like sacrifice would mean that it actually cuts into your life in some way, shape or form. So what would that look like for us over this three month period to do that? Okay, now I want to just continue to express this to you that we've told you this from the get go, that we are no debt or low debt people. Now, the only way for us to be low debt, no debt people when we move into a future facility at some point, three, four, five years down the road, is for us to start now in in how we try to give sacrificially toward that. So we're not in a position down the road where we have to do that. So if we don't start now, we're not going to be there in four or five years. And so we view this as a real strategic moment for us as we spend this money to be able to really pray and ask God to work generosity into us, that we can replenish that as a strategic step to be able to move in debt free down the road. I think we'd all agree that we would much rather move in debt free, correct? So if we're going to do that, it's going to mean that every part of our body is going to have to be very sacrificial now four five years out from that moment. Fair enough. So, um, so we want to continue to put this before you for the next three weeks or so for you to get before God and ask God, what would that look like June, July, and August for us to go in that direction and be very, very sacrificial, extraordinarily sacrificial for those three months. Fair enough. 
Okay. Now, in light of that, this is where it gets a little bit awkward. Um, we're about to start a series called Gospel, Greed, and Generosity today. Now, okay, I need to preface this with a couple of things. First of all, um, I, I wouldn't ordinarily probably partner these two things together. So I, I want to walk you through how this has happened for us. Nine months ago, when we started, uh, roughly started First Peter, we decided that after First Peter, we were going to do a series on money and possessions. That's nine months ago. Right. So that's seven months before we even knew the land thing existed. And that's nine months before I knew I was going to stand up to, here and say, we're asking you to consider what extraordinary generosity would look like. Right. So that was seven, nine months before today, seven months before we even knew the property existed, that we'd be able to be in this position. So this is why I'm concerned. OK, well, and by the way, I think you could probably look at both of these two things together. Nine months ago, us deciding that and then us being here today. And it actually seems like God might be sovereign, you know. And so, but in light of that, I I want you to know that I've got a concern about that. And and here's my concern. This is what makes me a little bit nervous about that is I don't want you to confuse motives. Because I want you to hear this very clearly. I am not out for your money. I am out for you to be free from the love of money. So I just want to say that as clearly as I can. That's the motive. My motive is not to get anything from you. It's to get something for you. For you to have freedom from the love of money. So I just want you to hear that really clear. And this is what concerns me a little bit about both of these two things happening on the same day. Us asking that and starting this series. And I think that motive can get switched up. So I want to say this one more time. I don't want things from you. I want things for you. I want you free from the love of money. That's why we're starting this series. That's why we're doing this whole thing. Okay, so in light of that, um, I, I want to give you five reasons why we're doing a series, Gospel, Greed, and Generosity. Why it is that, that we're going to spend the next couple of months together working through some of what the Bible has to say about these issues. Here's the first one. Number one, the reasons for this series. Number one, it's a dominant theme. Money and possessions are a dominant theme in the Bible. It is all throughout the Bible. You can't read the Bible without being confronted with what God says about money and possessions. So let let me just give you this just for a starter here. There are 2,350 verses in the Bible that deal with money and possessions. That's 2,350 of them. That's a lot. If you combine all the verses in the Bible on money and prayer, combine all of those, there's twice as many on money and possessions as there is on those. Okay, so there's a lot. God has a lot to say about money and possessions. So let me just give you a quick sampling of some of what the Bible says. This is just going to be a short survey here. So it starts in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we know that God created everything and called it good. So here's what we know about money and possessions and about everything. That when God created it, he said they're all good. Money is not... It's not bad in and of itself. It's morally neutral. So, so everything is created and it's good. But we also know that in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that God made Adam and Eve stewards of his creation. That Adam and Eve, you and I, are owners of nothing and stewards of everything. We get that really clearly in Genesis 1. Then you get to Genesis 18. I think you've got this um, story that some of you will remember of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember that one? Um, God, he uh, comes to Abraham, a couple of angels come to Abraham and now they're about to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And, uh, and, and the angels tell Abraham why, because their sin has risen up. Like they are wicked people. Their sin has risen up before God. Now, let me ask you this. What is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Now be careful before you answer, because I think most of us only have half the picture of what their sin was. Like when I ask that question, I think almost everyone in the room says some sort of sexual perversion. But it's not just sexual perversion. Listen to Ezekiel comment on the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. 
She and her daughters had pride. They had an excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid in the poor and needy. Now let that sober you for a second. Do you see how God equates sexual perversion here with greed here? That these two things are on the same playing field with God? That this is how serious greed is with God? He's going to destroy a city over greed? Okay, and we, we keep going here. Um, we've got the Ten Commandments. Three of the Ten Commandments, the first, the eighth, and the tenth, are on money and possessions. Um, we've got Job 121, great theology of, of money and possessions, where Job says, um, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Great theology of money and possessions. I love what one pastor said, that in relationship to money and possessions, when we are born, we are all born with a clenched fist. But when we die, we all die with an open hand. And that's what Job's trying to tell you. That, that you came in naked and you're going to die naked. So you might as well get your hand open early, right? So you, you keep going here into Proverbs. It's chock full of, of verses on money and possessions. You go into Ecclesiastes and you see the picture of a man who is pursuing money and possessions, hoping it will give him life and meaning and significance and satisfaction. And his conclusion is it's all vanity. It doesn't work. It's a, it's a false promise that money makes to you. You keep going into the prophets. You've got Isaiah and all these minor prophets who are going to warn against the dangers of riches. And they're going to talk about God's protective care for the needy and, and the powerless. So you've got this all throughout the Old Testament. Then you get to the New Testament and it's all over the New Testament. You've got John the Baptist as the gospels are opening up like in Luke 3. He's, he's talking in Luke 3, 8, and he says, um, you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So if you've repented, you need to actually bear fruit that would, would align with that. And the crowds around him start to ask questions. Well, what does that look like? What must I do to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? And all three of his responses are these three different people that ask. All three responses have to do with money and possessions. So that's interesting, I think. That if, when people come to him and say, what do I do to make sure I, I'm living in repentance? All three responses deal with money and possessions. So the crowds say, what must I do? He looks at him and says, if you've got two shirts, share with the guy that, that, that has none. He looks to the tax collector. What must I do? And he says, well, only take what, what, what they owe you. He looks to the, to the Roman soldier. What must I do? And he says, don't extort people. Be content with your wages. All three responses deal with money and possessions. But it isn't just a John the Baptist thing. This is a Jesus thing. 15% of the words in red in your Bible, Jesus' words specifically in your Bible, 15%, 1.5 out of 10, deal with money and possessions. Isn't that something? 16 of the roughly 40 parables that Jesus gives deal with money and possessions. And this isn't just a Jesus thing. This is a Paul thing. I think it's interesting to see in Paul's letters where greed finds itself on the list of vices. Let me just give you one sampling of this in 1 Corinthians 6. This is verse 9 and 10. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he says this, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. So he's talking about people who are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So the sexually immoral, they're not going to inherit it. Nor the idolaters, they're not. The the adulterers, they're not. Nor men and women who practice homosexuality, they're not. Verse 10, nor thieves, nor the greedy. Now, I just think it's interesting that greed finds itself right by adultery. I think God has a little different perspective on our use of money and specifically where money starts to use us than we do. Like, this is really serious before God. And this isn't just a Paul thing. This is an every biblical author thing. This is a, a James thing. This is a Peter thing. This is a John thing. They're all going to have a lot to say about money and possessions. 
Okay, now I want to try to answer this question. This is an important question. Why does God talk so much about money and possessions? Why is that? Can I give you the answer? Because if you're a Christian, he is a father for you and he actually loves and cares for you. That's why. Now, let me say that again. Do you know why God talks so much about money and possessions? Because he, he loves you. He's not against you. He loves you and cares for you. That's why. Because he knows money has the potential to destroy you. That's why he talks so much about it. Because he actually loves you. Now, I can't talk for every pastor, but I want to reiterate this again. I can't talk for all of them. I can talk for me. I am for you in talking about money. The reason I want to do this series is this is the motive. I love you and care for you, and I don't want you to be destroyed by money. That's why I think it's pivotal and crucial that we have this sort of a conversation together. And I want to say this again. I don't want things from you. I want things for you. Specifically, that you would be free from the love of money. That you wouldn't, your faith wouldn't be shipwrecked by the love of money. Okay, now I know that when some, some people walked in the room today, you looked down at your bulletin and you saw gospel, greed, and generosity, and you might have thought, wow, they might be talking about money today. And when you heard that we actually were talking about money, something in you started to kind of boil and this cynicism started to kind of rise to the surface. Your blood pressure started to rise just a little bit. Your face started to get a little bit red. All that started to happen, right? And so your attitude would probably be summarized in one letter that a pastor got that went like this. This will be on the screen for you. And this is funny, okay? Said this, he got this letter after doing a a sermon on money. uh, This letter came in. I was never so disappointed in a service as I was on Sunday. I have an unbelieving friend that I got to come with me. And what were you preaching about? Money. I can assure you that she was not impressed. And why money when there are so many beautiful things to say? You'd better reconsider such messages in the future. Leave money to God and he'll handle everything. Believe me. I love this church and usually like the sermons. I love that line. I love this church and usually like the sermons, but that was terrible. And I love how she signs off. Look at this. A Christian who loves to go to church to hear the word. Isn't that just awesome? A Christian who loves to go to church and hear the word. And by the way, if that's you and and you want to email, my email is dan at stonegate-church.com. Feel free. Anything you want to send in. I'd love to read it. Okay. So, but, but here's the truth for, for this lady. And this is the truth for some of us in the room. She doesn't love to hear the word preached. She loves to hear just the sections of the word that doesn't offend and threaten her idols. Okay. So I, I just want to be gentle and clear as I say this, that if, if something in you rises up, when we talk about this as a church family, that has got more to do with you than anything else. So can, can I just encourage you to do this. If that's you to make sure you turn the word and allow the word to read you a little bit because you need that. If there's something in you that gets real cynical and all of that starts to happen, that is a you thing, not an anyone else thing, right? Right. The, the, let's just say you've seen the abuse of money like crazy. The abuse does not mean the proper use of money is wrong, right? And so if that's you, I just want to be as gentle and clear that that's a you problem, not an anyone else problem. So take a prolonged look at your heart. If that's you, Okay, second reason. First reason is the dominant theme in the Bible. Second reason is we need to be biblically and theologically informed about money and possessions. That you need that, that I need that. See, in America, greed, rather than being avoided as a, as a vice, is actually applauded as a virtue. 
So see, we, we all need help in seeing through that clearly. And listen, it's so ordinary and everywhere that it's impossible for us to see clearly. Right? So th- there needs to be a season in our life where we get underneath the word and allow the word to start con- to conform us and to shape us in our view of money and possessions. Let me just give you a test case on this. Let's, let's say that you today just got a new job. You're a financial advisor. Okay, so you just got the job. You walk into your office tomorrow and a lady walks in. And the lady walks in and uh, she's just lost her husband, recently uh, became a widow. She lost her husband and she is destitute. She has no money. She, she looks at you and says, I've got $2 in my pocket and that is the only thing I own. I own nothing else in the entire world but these $2. And she looks at you and says, and I actually think God's calling me to put these $2 in the offering plate to give them to God. I actually think he wants me to do that. Now, what would your response back to that be? See, I think this would be a reasonable response that a lot of us would have. Um, now, you know that God also blessed you with a brain, right? So you can also be sensible in this moment. Like, you know that tomorrow, and, and listen, God knows your heart. He knows you're willing to give it. So that's all he cares about. As long as you're willing to give it, it's okay. You know you're going to need a sandwich tomorrow, right? Use the $2, buy you a sandwich tomorrow. Be sensible here. I think that would be a reasonable response that a lot of us would have to her. Now, okay, so she walks out and another person walks in. This guy's a middle-aged man who's been very successful. He's a farmer. He's a hard worker. He's a moral man. And he is, God has really blessed his business. I mean, he is blown up. He is banking, right? So you got this guy. And he looks at you and says, uh, okay, I think this is what I need to do. God has really blessed me. And I think what I need to do is build some bigger barns so I can store up more of, the, of these grains, more of these crops, more of this stuff. And I think if I can do that, when I get to be 55, I'm going to be set. I, I think when I get to be 55, man, when I look at the future, I'm going to be secure financially. I'm not going to have another problem in the world. I am going to be good to go. I'm not going to have another problem. Now, what would your advice be to that guy? I think a lot of our advice would, would be like this. Man, I wish I could be like you. Um, God bless you. It's your barns. It's your farm. It's your business. So, I mean, you can do what you want with it. If you want to, you know, put enough in the bank to be secure when you get there. I mean, that's, we're all good, right? And so maybe, maybe I can be like that one day when I'm 55. And, and so now here's the question though, is what does God think about those two scenarios? See, it's not what do you think or what do I think? The problem is none of us probably think very well because we live in the richest country in the world. So none of us are thinking very well. So the question is, what does God think? And God doesn't leave that up for, for question. In uh, Mark 12, he's going to look at this poor widow who has two coins left in her pocket and is about to give them. And, and you know what God does for her? Rather than saying, hey, let's be sensible. You're going to need a sandwich tomorrow. I mean, I bless you with the brain. Let's use that. Rather than doing that, you know what he does for her? As she puts her last two cents in, in, in the, the offering, he gives her unqualified commendation. And you know what God does to our rich fool in Luke 12? So we've got a, a story in Luke 12 of this rich fool. He builds bigger barns. God's blessed him. And listen, he's a moral guy. He's not doing this in, a, in an unbiblical way. He's a hard worker, right? He, he's got more money. He's building bigger barns. You know what God calls him? A fool. And, and I just want you to see this. That I think for what so many of us would call wise, God calls unwise. And what many of us would call unwise, God actually calls wise. I'm talking about this, Randy Alcorn, who I think has written just the gold standard in money and possessions. We're going to be recommending a few of the resources on it, but he, he said this comparing these two, sto- uh, these two stories. He said, these two stories and our responses to them show that our beliefs about money are not only radically different from God's, but diametrically opposed to them. 
if we take these passages seriously, seriously, we must ask some probing questions. Who are featured more frequently in Christian magazines and talk shows? Poor widows or rich fools? Who receives the most respect and attention in many Christian organizations? Who is more highly esteemed in most churches? Who typically serves on our boards and determines the direction of our ministries? Today, don't we have a scarcity of poor uh, poor widows and a surplus of rich fools? I mean, can we all just agree that we probably all, just by nature of where we live, are going to have some foggy thinking in relationship to money and possessions, and we all need the Bible to come along and shape us, to clear out the fog so we can see these things clearly. Number three, Third reason is we really want you free from the love of the love of money. We really want you free from that. The the Bible is not going to call money an evil thing. It's going to call the love of money an evil thing. And we really want you free from the love of money. And I actually think that it's one of the biggest hindrances in this room to following Jesus well. Um, This is going to be Craig Bloomberg. He wrote a book called uh, Give Me Neither Poverty or Riches, where he surveys the entire Bible and what it says about money and possessions. And in summary, he says this. It is arguable that materialism is the single biggest competitor with authentic Christianity for the hearts and souls of millions in our world today, including many in the visible church. The biggest single competitor. And I would agree with that. I think in this room, it's one of the biggest competitors. And here's the ironic thing about greed is it can be eating you up and you're unaware of it. I think this is many of our stories. We personally are being eaten up by greed, but we can't even see it. Now listen to Randy Alcorn address this blinding nature of of greed. He says this, My interactions with people as a pastor, teacher, counselor, and researcher, as well as many uh, observations of my own tendencies, have convinced me that in the Christian community today, there is more blindness, rationalization, and unclear thinking about money than anything else. Now, I actually really agree with that. I think there's more unclear thinking about this issue than there is just about any other issue the Bible's going to teach. See, greed has got this blinding nature. One of the things that makes greed greed is that it blinds you to greed. See, all that you need to convince yourself that you're not greedy is one person that you think is more greedy than you. All that you need to convince yourself that you're not rich is to see one person richer than you. All you need to convince yourself that you're not eaten up with materialism is to see one person more eaten up with it than you. See, this is the blinding nature that greed has. Is is it's everyone else's problem, just not your own problem. Now, I'm about to say something I hope shocks your senses here. Okay, so listen carefully to this. This last week, I asked five pastors a question. Five of them. This represents 132 years of pastoral ministry. A decade or a century and a third of pastoral ministry. Ask them this question. Have you ever had someone come into your office and confess to you, I am a greedy person? Five people, five pastors, 132 years. Every one of them said, no, I've never had that happen. Should that tell you something? Should that, should that maybe tell us that we need God to really do an extraordinary work in our life so that we can actually see how much we are eaten up by greed? We, we all need that. Greed is not just their problem, it's our problem. In this room, I'll guarantee you, most of us, like greed have, has its grip around our neck right now, and we don't even know it. And my hope for you and me is that God would loosen our grip on money and greed's grip on us. So we want you free from the love of money. Number four. 
is we want you to see that the gospel prunes, greeds, and promotes generosity. That this is a gospel issue, that the gospel prunes, greed, and promotes and fuels generosity. This is a gospel issue. So we want you to connect how the perfect life of Jesus lived in your place, the death of Jesus, that on the cross for your sin, buried in a tomb, rose on the third day, how that relates to greed. How, how learning that, knowing that, living in that actually corresponds to, promotes, and fuels radical generosity. I love what one um, author said. He said where um, the, the grace of lightning strikes... The, the, the thunder of generosity is sure to follow. And that's true. Where, where the gospel, where grace, the lightning of that strikes, the thunder of generosity, of living with an open hand, is sure to follow for all of us. That these are gospel issues. There is probably no more sure test about your belief or lack of belief in Jesus than your checkbook. How you spend your money is a sure indicator of what it is that you value. I'm going to say that again. How you spend your money is a sure indicator of what you value. So we want you to see how the gospel relates to these issues. Number five, and this will take us into to Luke 18, is it's a crucial element of discipleship. Alcorn goes on to say this, the principle is timeless. There is a powerful relationship between our spiritual condition and our attitude and actions concerning money and possessions. Money is a ruthless competitor for your heart's affection. Money is a ruthless competitor to your heart's affection. And this is why it's a crucial element of discipleship. You can't talk about following Jesus in our culture apart from talking about money. One of the greatest hindrances to actually following Jesus. So this takes us to Luke 18. So make sure you're there. Um, in Luke 18, Luke is about to walk us through an encounter that Jesus had with a young man called um, Rich and a ruler. So it's this rich young ruler as he interacts with Jesus. And, and this is where you pick up the story in verse 18. The rich young ruler says this. And a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now that, that verse is giving you what the passage is about. The passage is about how do you inherit eternal life? Now it's going to talk about eternal life in three or four different ways. Look, look down through this with me. Verse 22. It's going to talk about eternal life as treasure in heaven. Verse 24 and 25 as entering the kingdom of God. Verse 26 as being saved. All of those are just this different ways of saying the same thing. How do we get that? How do we become saved? How do we become part of God's redeemed family? How, how do we have eternal life? How do we enter the kingdom of God. How do we become right with God? It's all, that is what the passage is about. And can I just say, there's no more crucial question for you to know. There is no more crucial question for you to have clear is what does it mean? How how do I have eternal life? Okay. So with that said, I'm going to show you five things that Jesus teaches in this passage, five things that Jesus is trying to use this occasion to teach the rich young ruler and to teach you and I five things. Here's the first one. Number one, Jesus is teaching us about God. He's teaching us about God. Isn't it interesting that Jesus instantly turns the conversation toward a theological topic? Like theology is, is what you know and believe about God. And listen, we're all theologians. It's just a matter of if we're good ones or not. So Jesus instantly turns the topic theological. Look at verse 19. Jesus says this in response to his question. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Let me try to explain what Jesus is doing there. Jesus is not saying, listen, you're all scumbags. It would never be right in any sort of a context to call you ever good. That's not what he's saying. There are other places in the Bible where Paul's going to call people, refer to people as good. 
Like they're fairly moral people. They're, they're decent guys. So, so it's not saying that in, in a little G sense that people aren't good. What Jesus is saying is that in a big G sense, an ultimate G sense, no one is good except God. God is the only person that is in a big G sense good. Like when the psalmist says something like this, taste and see that the Lord is good. That word good would apply to no human being, none of us in the room. It applied to no one but God. When um, at the end of uh, the Psalms, when I think it's Psalms 148, where the psalmist is going to say, praise the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. That good would be applied to no one but God. In an ultimate sense, Jesus is saying that God is the only one that's good. He, he alone is good. He alone is perfect. He alone is sinless. Okay, so, so in that sense, he, he alone is good. See, when, when Jesus starts talking to us about God, and when we start to learn about God and see God clearly, here's the natural implication of that. We instantly see the contrast between God and us. So part of what we do when we're teaching about God is we're showing the contrast. When we say God is good, here's what we're implying. You're not good. See, the rich young ruler, when, he, when he's walked into this, here's what he's starting to realize. Here's what Jesus is trying to teach him. By saying God is, is God and God is good, by implication, he's saying, rich young ruler, you are not God and you are not good. There's only one person that's ultimately good and you're not him. See, th- this is what Jesus is trying to walk him into. And this is why when you get to verse 20, he, he spouts off the Ten Command- some of the Ten Commandments to him. Verse 20, he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. See, Jesus is trying to show him that he needs a savior. That he is not perfect. He is not good. The problem is he thinks he's good. He thinks he can actually earn his way to salvation, but he can't. That's what Jesus is trying to show him. Then look at verse 21. And look at how the rich young ruler responds to him. Verse 21. And he said, all of these, these commandments, all of these I have kept from my youth. Now listen carefully to what I'm about to say here. Never underestimate your potential to totally be self-deceived. Never underestimate your potential to be totally self-deceived. I mean, I'd just like to get this guy's mom and say, can you verify that? Can you please get like check that off and, and make sure this is true? I mean, are you serious? See, here's what the Ten Commandments are supposed to do for you. The Ten Commandments are supposed to show you two pictures. They're supposed to show you a picture of who God is, that God is the only one that perfectly lives in these, that God is perfect. He is holy. That's what the Ten Commandments are showing you, that this is who God is. And the Ten Commandments are also supposed to show you a picture of who you are. See, there's not a one of us in the room who want our life judged by the Ten Commandments. Do you know that? There's not one of you in the room that want that. Who wants your life judged by? Have you perfectly valued God above all other things in your life? First commandment. Nobody wants us to do that. How many of us would want to um, hold your life up perfectly to the standard of don't ever lie? Everyone in here lies. You can lie about you not lying, but I promise you, you've lied. I guarantee you have. We could talk about stealing. We could talk about coveting. We could talk about every one of the Ten Commandments, and you're going to break every one of them to a T. See, it's supposed to show you who God is, and it's supposed to give you a great picture of who you aren't. That you're not God, that you're not good. And then the Ten Commandments are supposed to point us to Jesus who spans the gap between a perfect and good God and you and I who are imperfect and not good. See, this is the role of the Ten Commandments. So when when Jesus turns this conversation theological here, when he's starting to teach about God, he's saying, this is who God is. This is who you are. And this is who I am. I am your only hope to be right with this God. 
So Jesus is teaching us some things about God. But here's the second thing. Jesus is also teaching and warning us about the dangers of wealth. About the dangers of wealth. Look at verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he be- I want you to underline this. He became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now, I think this is an interesting just kind of point in the story, because in a church, if a guy were to come down and say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, I'm in for this. Just show me what I need to do. Churches, they'd be getting their cards out. They'd be getting them over here with counseling. And they would be bending over backward to get this guy his answer. But isn't it ironic that Jesus didn't give him his answer? That, That Jesus turns the conversation toward money? I mean, isn't that, isn't that strange? I mean, can you imagine a guy coming down and saying, I want, I want, man, I, I'm in for this. Show me what, what, what's next. And, and the pastor saying, let's, let's talk about your money first. Before we, before we go on, let's make sure that, that we've got that. Can you imagine that? I mean, it, it's an ironic twist in the story that Jesus is going to say, you want eternal life? Let's talk money. And here's what Jesus is doing. And by the way, he's not teaching salvation by giving. Salvation is always by grace. So in in Luke 19, you see Zacchaeus and he gives half to the poor, right? So it's not a, you give everything and then you're a Christian. That's not the point. The point is, is Jesus is saying this. If you want to become a Christian, here's what a Christian does and is. A Christian is a person where grace has worked so powerfully in their life that they value Jesus so much that they are willing to walk away anything and everything earthly. That's, That's what a Christian is. So Jesus is saying, you, you want to be, this is, this is the picture of a Christian. Grace is so, works so powerfully in them. Jesus is now so precious to them that everything else is expendable. That, that's a Christian. And see, in this, Jesus is saying, the problem is, that's not you yet. There's, there's other things that are equally or more precious to you. See, Jesus is saying, if you want eternal life, you have to care about your soul and me more than you do your riches. See, in this thing, Jesus is warning about the dangers of wealth. See, he, in, in this passage, it's economical language to say the exact same thing that, that Luke or Jesus is going to say in Luke 9.23. Luke 9.23, if you want to come after me, here's what you need to do. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and come and follow me. See, it's, it's economical language to say that. Give up everything. Deny yourself everything. Everything else has to be back burner. Everything else has to be down here in priority. I have to be up there. If you want to come and follow me, that's what it requires. You to give up everything to get me. I have to be that precious to you. It's economical language to say the exact same thing. The problem is this guy's just a specific application with money because this guy loved money more than Jesus and Jesus knew that. Jesus is warning about the dangers of being rich. John Wesley, in his biography, he tells um, the story of what happened when people were converted under his ministry. And as he's talking about it, he says that, that it's the, the strangest thing. People go from being drunks to now they're actually hardworking, good citizens. They're actually good guys now. So they're no longer getting drunk. They're actually working hard and they're working well and they become rich. But here's the problem. When they get rich, they get real prideful and they forget about God and grow cold to God. See, this is what, this is what Jesus is warning against that, the dangers of wealth, you getting rich, you going prideful and you forgetting God acting as if God doesn't exist in your life, no longer depending on God in your life. This is what he's warning against here. See, it's ironic that when this guy walked toward his money, he was walking away from God. And can I just tell you something that that's a well-worn path. 
And many in this room are walking that path toward money and away from God. See, what he, what he owned, owned him. And can I just say what makes it really difficult for those in the room is you're in the biblical category. The, the Bible would call you rich. Everyone, every, basically everyone in the room, you're in that biblical category of being the rich. And can I tell you why it's so difficult for the rich, just like this rich young ruler? Is the more you own, the more likely you are to walk away from Jesus when he calls you to walk away from what you own. I'm going to say that again. The more you own, the more likely it is that you're going to walk away from Jesus when he calls you to walk away from everything that you own. See, that's what makes it really hard for us, isn't it? See, I'll just make it real practical. If, if, uh, if you owned a $50 tent from Walmart that you slept in, you had three packs of ramen noodles and three hand-me-down shirts, and Jesus comes along and says, hey, I, I want all of it. You'd be real open-handed with that, wouldn't you? Who cares? It's, it's three hand-me-down shirts. You can go get three more for 50 cents at the Goodwill. But here's the problem. Now, I want you to look at me here. Here's the problem. When you own a couple hundred thousand dollar home, you own nice cars, you have a lot of nice toys, and Jesus comes along and says, I want it all. Now, I want you to walk away from it right now. It gets to be a little more difficult, doesn't it? That conversation gets real serious real fast. And can I just tell you, this is where a lot of us find ourselves, that we're walking down the well-worn path to our riches and away from God because we have so much. Are you hearing that? See, this, this is us. But this is where we find ourselves here. See, when you think about becoming a Christian, and, and by the way, I'm empathetic toward our rich young ruler. I really am empathetic toward him. Because when you think about becoming a Christian, I, I think maybe an imagery for you to have in your brain when you think about what it looks like to become a Christian would be rock climbing. Any of you ever rock climb before? You know what happens when you get to the top of the wall? And somebody like 30 feet down on the ground with the rope in their hand looks at you and says, hey, all you need to do is let go of the rope or uh, go of the wall. All you need to do is just let go and lean back on that like half inch diameter rope and hope it's going to save you. You ever had that moment before? See, this is what it looks like to become a Christian. It's when we let go of everything we're looking to for security, for hope, for comfort, We let go of all of those things that we think are giving us security and we lean back and trust the rope of Jesus to save us and to be steady for us. See, here's the problem. The higher you get up on the wall with more wealth, the higher you get up on that wall. See, our our rich man, he had spent his entire life trusting in these things, climbing up this wall that felt so steady and so stable. And the higher you get up on that wall, the harder it is to let go because the further the ground is. That the higher you see, if you're one foot off the ground, who cares if you fall? But if you're 50 feet up off the ground and somebody says, now what you have to do is let go of the wall and and everything you think of that's steady and stable and secure. And you've got to sit back and you've got to trust Jesus to actually catch you. See, that gets to be really difficult, doesn't it? But that is what becoming a Christian is. Letting go of the wall and saying, Jesus, you're it. You are it. It's, it's sink or swim with you. And it was really hard for him. Just like it's really hard for us. See, the Bible is not calling wealth bad. It's just calling wealth dangerous, deceptive, and for many in this room, deadly. Are, are we tracking with that? Are we seeing that? Number three. Third thing Jesus is teaching us here. and We're, we're going to move quick here. Jesus is teaching us about the miracle of salvation. Look at verse 24. 
Jesus, seeing that he had uh, become sad, said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And let me just be clear here. You're the people, I'm the person who the Bible would call wealthy. This is talking to you, not the person down the street, not the person who has a couple hundred thousand dollars more. It's talking to you. We're in that category. And the Bible is saying, do you realize it is virtually impossible for you to become a Christian? Do you realize that? And then he illustrates it. He said, this is how hard it is. Verse 25. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus takes the biggest object that they would know, a camel, and the smallest, the eye of a needle, and says, you want to know how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? It's as hard as that camel fitting through the eye of that needle. That's how hard it is. That is how difficult it is for rich people to let go of the wall. That's how hard. And then look at verse 26. They're amazed at this. Those who heard it, including the disciples, said, then who can be saved? Let me give you the quick background on that. When they're, when they're amazed at this, they're amazed because, partly because of right theology, partly because of wrong theology. Here's the right piece. They equated material things to the blessing of God. And there is no doubt some link to that in the Bible. Look at Abraham. You can look through all these guys. There's no doubt some link toward material blessing and the blessing of God. Okay, but here's where they went awry with this. They went awry by thinking that everyone who has material things is actually favored and blessed by God. They would have believed that, and that's false. God has a long history of giving terrible people a lot of things, doesn't he? So that's not right. Just because you have money doesn't mean you're blessed or favored by God, but they thought it was. So they're looking at this rich young ruler thinking, if he can't get in, who can If he can't get in, I'm done for. If he can't get in, we might as well pack up and go home. Do you see why they're amazed? They're amazed because they're thinking, if this guy cannot get in the kingdom of heaven, we have no shot of getting in. And then look at what Jesus says in response, verse 27. But Jesus said, what is impossible with men is, is possible with God. Do you know that if you're a Christian in this room, it is a sheer miracle that you are? Do you know that? It is a miracle. See, like a a camel going through the eye of a needle is actually not impossible. It just requires a miracle to happen, doesn't it? It's the same for you. If you're a Christian, it's not impossible. It just requires a miracle for that to go down. If you're a Christian in this room, it is a miracle. Now, Selah, think about that for a second. Just Just let that wash over your heart. If you're a Christian, it is because God has done an extraordinary work of grace He has set his affection on you. He has wooed you. He has broken down every obstacle to keep you away from him. He has pried your hands off of the wall. That's why you're a Christian. It's a miracle. And then lastly, actually, fourthly, Jesus is is teaching us about the cost of discipleship, about the cost of discipleship. So he's already said this. He's already alluded to this. Let me give you one more picture of this in verse 28 and 29. Where Jesus says this, and Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And then Jesus says this, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. And let me stop there and just make this point. Jesus has already showed us that to be a Christian, you have to be willing to walk away from everything. You have to be willing to walk away from money. But he's saying here it's bigger than just money. It it is actually everything. It is also your houses. See that in, in verse 29, your house. Okay, now I want every person to look at me right now. Some of you, some of us, are way too attached to our homes. Some of us 
are way too attached to our home. If God called you to, to move tomorrow, you wouldn't do it because you love your home too much. And that's sin. That's idolatry. This is what Jesus is talking about. Everything has to be in an open hand. It's not Jesus plus all of this. It's Jesus alone. Everything else open handed. See, if Jesus called you tomorrow to move and you won't do it, that's a huge problem. That's what you call greed. See, some of us, we are way too attached to our family. See, it's not just houses. He says mothers, brothers, parents, all of that, too. See, money, our our family can be like money to some of us. See, some of us make all of our decisions. See, if God called you to do something drastic, you wouldn't do it because you're trying to keep your family all intact and all together. See, this is why some grandparents forsake some of the most meaningful ministry that God would give them because they're trying to track down their grandkids all the time. And I'm for that. Family's a great gift. It's just not a God thing. It's a gift, not God. See, some of us live in the suburbs rather than the inner city because we are so desperate to try to keep our kids in a bubble out here. And see, God's called some of us to live in the inner city, but we won't do it. See, when when family, when houses, when anything gets between you and God, following God, we have a huge issue. This is what Jesus is saying here. See, if, if you're not a Christian, let me try to give you a picture of what becoming a Christian is. Becoming a Christian, and just work with me here. If you can picture a guy coming up and and asking, giving you this hypothetical. I'm about to strip you down. You've got one thing you can keep with you. That's it. Everything else is is gone. I'm taking it. You've got your one thing. Here's what becoming a Christian is. It's when grace is so worked in you that you love Jesus above that one thing. That you love Jesus above that one thing. Now, let me ask you the question. Do you have a one thing that you love more than Jesus? Because I've got this suspicion that a lot of us do. See, being a Christian, like following Jesus, discipleship, is saying, God, I love you above everything. So God, if I have you, I am ultimately okay without having everything else. This is what a Christian is. Because Jesus, I have you. I am ultimately okay without having anything else. This is what Jesus is saying here. Lastly, last thing he teaches us. Jesus is showing us why sacrifice makes sense. See, I think this passage raises this question. In light of all that, who wants to be a Christian, right? I mean, I don't know if I'm in for all that. If this is what it means to be a Christian, you've got to be like halfway crazy to walk down that road. Like the well-worn path toward wealth might be a better road. Okay, so, so here's Jesus' answer to that question. Verse 29. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time, contrast, and in the age to come, eternal life. Okay, do you see the contrast here? He's saying both in this life and the one to come, you can expect to get more than you give. That's the promise. The reason it makes perfect sense to sacrifice everything, to keep everything in an open hand, to walk away from your house if God told you to, to walk away from your wealth if God called you to, to walk away from everything if God asked you to, the reason that makes sense is because God is saying here, I will give you more at the end of the day than you ever gave up. That's why it makes sense. And he says, you notice the contrast? He says, in this life, 
That means that when you die someday and you're looking back over your life, if you're a Christian and you're seeing clearly, you'll be able to say this. In light of everything I've, I, I've given in, in the pursuit of God, God has given me much more. You'll be able to say that if you're a Christian. That's what Jesus is saying here. Listen, and that doesn't mean that if you put a $10 in the offering this week, $20 is coming your way next week. It doesn't mean that. But it's saying at the end of the day, there is riches to be had here. Not material, but there are riches to be had here that you will say this. In light of everything I've given, I've, I've gotten so much more. And, and then you've got the next part. He says in the future. So in the age to come, he, he's saying this. That there is going to be a day, like history is not a smooth line. There's going to be a moment of great disturbance in the future where either you die or Jesus comes back and you're going to find yourself before, before God. And in that moment, the, the question of this passage, what, what does it take to get eternal life? Or what does it take to get saved? That is going to be the pressing question of the day. Questions about your savings account, questions about your investments. Those are going to be way down on the list. Top of the list, what does it take to get eternal life? What does it take to be right? That's the crucial question of the day. And in that day, can I just tell you something? There's going to be nothing worse than you not knowing Jesus on that day. And on that day, there's going to be nothing better than you knowing Jesus. Nothing better than you knowing Jesus. Because if you know Jesus, here's what God's promising you. That you're going to be welcomed in to a forever, like eternal life with him forever. Eternity with God forever. Now, take the best of what life can be now. Okay, think about that. I mean, the, the greatest stake, the greatest, pl- take the gr- best of what life can be now, multiply that times infinity, and that's what God is saying forever is. You get the best of the, the best for eternity. That's, that's what I'm promising you. And, and here's what Paul says. The the best in eternity is going to make all of these things that you're enduring now seem like light afflictions. They're going to seem light to you. They're going to seem like insignificant to you. I mean, some of us that are really in dark seasons right now need this promise and we need to know it, memorize it, meditate on it. We need to get this deep in our bones that God is saying there is a day coming that will make this day seem light to you. I, I think this is attributed to Mother Teresa where she says that, for the, even the most miserable earthly existence is just going to seem like one bad night in an inconvenient hotel in light of eternity. Now, do you see that? That's what Jesus is promising you. That's why at the end of the day, um, I, I love uh, David Livingston. He, he walked like 29,000 miles through Africa trying to get the gospel out. And at the end of his life, he said this, man, people talk about sacrifice. They, they actually try to equate this to sacrifice. He goes at the end of that, I never made a sacrifice. Why is that? Because he's going off of this passage and saying, because Jesus has given me a million times more than I have ever, that I ever gave. Because in the end of this thing, it will all be made up for. See, this is why keeping everything in your life in an open hand, everything, family, homes, wealth, everything in an open hand makes perfect sense. Because you're getting so much more than you're giving. Amen. Let's pray. I'm going to give you just a second to sit under that and to allow the Spirit of God to press in the things that needed to be pressed in and to wipe away the things that weren't helpful for you.
And we're going to finish our service by, um, by giving you a moment just to sit in that, and then we're going to sing. And as we kind of move in that direction, I, I want to apply this to your heart as we begin um, to worship through song. In, in Mark's account of the same story, um, when, when Jesus looks at the rich young ruler walking away sad, um, Mark says that Jesus was deeply grieved. He loved him. And I think it's just interesting to see that emotional attachment that Jesus has, that empathy that Jesus has for this man. And you start to ask the question, why is that? Why does Jesus have that special empathy for this guy? And I think this is it. Because Jesus, just like this man, was a rich young ruler. He's looking at this guy and saying, man, I'm young too. Just like this guy, I'm the ruler of the universe. And, and just like this guy, I've got unmeasurable riches. But Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler, isn't he? Rather than hoarding and walking away sad, he willingly and joyfully went to the cross for your sin. He, he willingly and joyfully gave up everything for you. See, the Bible's going to say he's immeasurably rich. Um, this is 2 Corinthians 8, 9. But he made himself poor. He, 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 he took immeasurably rich, took on the rags of a stable so that you could actually be rich, that you could actually have life. And listen, this isn't a material thing. The primary blessings of God are not material. And, and so Jesus is saying, Man, I, I have... I love how one pastor says it. Jesus is saying this, that in this passage, Jesus is looking at this rich young ruler and saying, I have given my big all, all that I have. I'm the ruler of the universe. Rich is beyond imagination. I've given my big all so that it would now become easy for you to give your little all. And I pray that Jesus would make us and the spirit of God would make us people who are ready and willing and joyfully giving our little alls everything in life in an open hand as we realize that God through Jesus has given his big all. Amen. So God, will you help us in this? God, I pray that you would. God, I pray for our church family specifically that you would give us eyes to see. (laughs) God, we need them. You'd give us grace to be able to see where greed and materialism is gripping us. And God, by your grace, that you would work these things out of us and you would work generosity into us, living our life with an open hand before you. So God, God, I pray that your spirit would make you, Jesus, so compelling, so precious that everything in life would now be expendable. And if you're in here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, then what a great time to affirm that he is all. He is everything. And if you're in here and you're a Christian, then I'll just leave you with this thought. What, What a great morning to reaffirm the vow that Jesus is the centerpiece of life. He is the one thing I'm close-handed around, everything else open-handed. I'm not walking down the worn path toward riches and away from God. I am with God, riches or not. So God, by your grace, will you do it? Why don't you stand with us as we sing? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.